This is Griff Manley, host of Shut Up and Listen. So shut up and listen while I interview Dr. Abney Nair, who wrote a book about how a communist killed a Republican president of the United States. So uh, do you dare wear short shorts, Dr. Nair? Yes, but I'm a wax man. And Mr. Manley, my book, James Garfield, An American Life, is about the 20th president a man of great contradictions, and a fascinating subject for a biography. I only dedicate a few pages to the religious beliefs of his assassin, Charles Guiteau. Religious beliefs? Commies don't have religion. Mr. Manley, Guiteau was labeled a communist in that he was a member of the Oneida Commune, a millennial cult. I'll never trust a millennial. No, one shouldn't. But I doubt that Guiteau ever read the Communist Manifesto or Das Kapital. That's what it's all? Never mind. But my book is about Mr. Garfield's distinguished Civil War record, his attempts to unify the stalwart and half-breed factions of the Republican Party, his unexpected nomination for president, and the catastrophic medical malpractice which surely did more to hasten his demise than the bullet lodged in his chest. Charles Guiteau is but a minor character in this tragedy. Half-breed Republicans? Were they part Cherokee or something? Um, yes, which is why they always had trouble getting elected. They could only cast half a vote. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 20, James A. Garfield. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars, give us a review, recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it, and we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. And we're back to renew our trot through the presidents. Uh, We are still here with James McRae. Say hi, James. Hello. <laughs> Dr. Chelsea Denoge. Hello. And for a few moments, perhaps Dr. Matthew Norman. Hello. <laughs> and very good. And our writers of wrongs, Mr. Paul. Hello. Mr. Patrick. Is I. Mr. Tommy. Hello. And Ms. Sandy. Hello. And Mr. Joe. And here we go. Actually, it's good that we're musical because our next president is not known for a lot of things, but I do believe James Garfield may be the only president that was written about by both Johnny Cash and Stephen Sondheim. Albeit not in collaboration. True. True that. Oh, what that we know of. Oh, boy, yeah. Yes, but on roughly the same topic. But we'll get to that topic because that was the demise of James Garfield. I mean, I think the important thing when I'm talking about Garfield is really narrowing down why he hated Mondays. And... <laughs> I, I'm Garfield on that one, honestly. Um, I, I have no, uh, no love lost on Monday. <laughs> I do think Garfield has the greatest... Um, mass of mausoleum to days served as president ratio of any president yeah <laughs> even like better than harrison still <laughs> the first that, harrison i mean not ben that'd be a close one <laughs> or the lincoln memorial yeah well, he got a full time. like three and a half years wow okay oh so it's proportional mass got it okay yeah. right right so if, if you took the the kilograms of mass of the mausoleum divided by the days served as president Who's got the greatest number? I, and kids, I, if you, kids, if you at home can do that math for us and send it in on a three by five card, yeah. we'll send you a t-shirt. I think this is what Lincoln. I think this is what Lincoln was referring to when he said the awful arithmetic. <laughs> he also has a spot in my heart because his home is in Mentor, Ohio, 
where my sister still lives, where I came very close to growing up. And there's a porch, and the porch has a big deal in his presidency. But we'll get to that. You all three have already been on the show, so I've already asked my famous question. But I'm going to do a variant on it. Who is your least favorite president from Ohio? (laughs) Chelsea, you you definitely have the answer there. All of them. (laughs) (laughs) A bold She's answer. Just better because the bold answer Ohio State University owns Michigan. You're just bitter because you have Toledo. <laughs> yeah, but Cedar Park's not far. Cedar, right. Cedar, Cedar Point. Yeah. Cedar, Cedar Point. Point Park. <laughs> Cedar Park. Just a big I, forest. Of Mike, you live in Lansing. You should be a Michigan State fan. Oh, all right, all right. Before we start a war between Michigan and Ohio. Uh, <laughs> we have the in. second best chili in the country. There. Put no, it out there. No, no, that's not chili. How dare you? Well, mm-hmm. I would argue that that no Ohio president was truly terrible, but they were all just kind of a mix of mediocrity, much like Ohio itself. <laughs> He'll take it. High <laughs> five. He was sort of a dark horse, was he not, Tommy? I know you wrote a sketch about this. But, but the- well, um, almost the opposite. It wasn't that he was counted out. He was stumping for John Sherman and was so charismatic, people said, forget Sherman, it's Garfield. That's, that's our guy. Some of that was partly because, I mean, that was a convention that lasted close to three days they did like 30 some votes 36 i think it was i think it was deadlocked and he seemed like a good compromise in part just because he was he was an excellent speaker Mm -hmm. um he was also and this was something i never realized the only president that was a house rep that was in the house and he actually graduated from the house of representatives to the presidency which i don't know if our historians might i mean maybe it's an obvious question as why that's never happened more often but you mean he went directly from the house to the president's okay. only guy? Only in fact, I don't think he was able to serve. I think he had been elected and had to resign to accept the presidency. I might be wrong on that. Hmm. No, he he had been in the house for a while. He'd been in the house. Yeah. I am wrong on that. Then. Yeah, he yeah, was a really good speech in the house when uh, Congress is presented with Francis Carpenter's painting of Lincoln presenting the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet. Delegates, to order! The first ballot of the 1880 Chicago Republican Party nominated convention will commence shortly. Oh, tell me the truth, Garfield. Do I have a snowball's chance in hell out there? I shan't lie to you, Mr. Sherman. The situation is not ideal. The stalwarts are backing that drunk General Grant to come back. I mean, can you imagine the same man president on two non-consecutive occasions? (laughs) But I digress. And the the half-breeds are backing civil service reform, so they're after that main fraudster, James Blaine. Oh, who does that leave for me? Um, you know, it's a coalition of, um... It's the leftovers. Pretty much, sir, yes. It's mainly temperance men and a handful of voters who think you're your brother, William Tecumseh Sherman. But William's training soldiers down at Leavenworth. I know. But we think it might be best to capitalize on the confusion, so make sure you don't say your first name. Aw, again? You you didn't even use my name when you introduced me on Saturday night. And for that, I am dearly sorry, Mr. Sherman. I assure you I'm only here to assist you in becoming the next President of the United States. Now, let's get your name out in that crowd. Ballot number three. Ballot number three. Wow. All this campaigning is exhilarating. I'm on top of the world. But, Jimmy, I haven't even broke a hundred votes. Blaine and Grant are both around 300. Sure. 
but did you hear that delegate from Pennsylvania? <laughs> he voted for me. I mean, come on, I'm not even running. There's no way I could be that charismatic, right? Right? James, I thought you wanted me to be president. Uh, no, no of, of course, of course I do. Um, Say, what do you think about this uh, Dark Horse thing they keep talking about? What? You know how some of the Midwestern delegates are saying that the deadlock can't break without new candidates on the ballot? Yeah, so... It's just um, so wild to think that anyone could end up being the Republican nominee. I mean, anybody at all... I want to be the Republican nominee. Right. That's what I meant. Anyone could be the Republican nominee, including you. Get some sleep, Mr. President. You're going to need it to make an acceptance speech tomorrow. Ballot number 34. Ballot number 34. James, I'm beginning to lose face. What? Why? You've been above 100 votes all day. But you just got 17 of them. Oh, that. Th those are Wisconsinites. They don't count. Uh, and didn't I call for Chairman Hoare to rectify the situation immediately? Yes. And what did I say? You said that without your consent, you shouldn't be receiving votes. Exactly. No matter how great a president you would be. Did I say that? And then Mr. Orr said that he wouldn't see a president undone by a point of order. And then he winked at you and you winked back. You winked back, James. Well, of course I winked back. That's only polite. And I winked for you. You really don't want to be president? That's what I said, isn't it? That's what I told the chairman just now, and it's what I told Senator Benjamin Harrison two days ago when he asked if I'd accept the nomination. Ben Harrison asked if you, you wanted to accept uh, the nomination? Don't worry about it. Ballot number 35. Ballot number 35. Wow. wow. I did not see that coming. They gave you 50 votes. They only gave me 99. That's still 49 better than me, sir. I shouldn't be competing with you at all. And now Senator Blaine is, is telling all of his supporters to vote for you. Maybe I should just give up and do the same. Well, no one would blame you at this point. You're not even going to try and stop me? Oh, um, don't do that, sir. We can still save your candidacy. You really think so? Ballot number 36. Ballot number 36. Well, I had to accept the nomination. All those delegates were looking at me. Oh. But did you have to point out how badly I lost in your acceptance speech? Um, gotta go. They're throwing me a ball. I have to get there before General Grant empties out the bar. Oh, he was my ride home. We also had an earlier conversation with um, a gentleman from the Neo-Futurists who did a show about the, the First Ladies, and he was very complimentary of Lucretia Garfield. Historians, apparently, uh, was someone who really did a lot to shape and try to have Garfield, her husband, remembered. 
Andy Baides of the Neo-Futurists of Chicago, Illinois. I think Lucretia Garfield, which she was the one I was probably the most taken with. She's one of these, and there are like certain first ladies that you sort of see repeated. She was one of these sort of amazing women bound by historical circumstances and in her marriage, you know, I mean, she was one of those folks who would have been like a Hillary Clinton if she had been first lady in the 90s, but instead was kind of resented and beat down and told to like be less than for years and years and years during a really complicated marriage. And we have all their correspondence, their personal correspondence, which is really rare. And uh, James Garfield was her her husband, and he had this like really complicated kind of like emo relationship that's like kind of uncomfortable, honestly, to to read about, to be let in on. But uh, yeah, she was she was more progressive than he was, and 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 really wanted to be treated like an equal in the marriage. And he was he was very 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 that was way ahead of its time, and he was very against it. Eventually, she just kind of caved and leaned in to the whole kind of like housewife thing and their marriage got really harmonious but then he died and afterwards she kind of i think she legitimately loved him very much but afterwards she 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 founded the first presidential center so that's kind of like all her she's the one get, they'd all kind of like burned and destroyed their stuff before that she built her own house she had like these like she was like she was really brilliant she had this hmm. architecturist's mind why am I blanking on what they call architect? She had an architect. <laughs> I just wanted to make it fancier. You, you know, uh, some people are better suited to being a widow than a spouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I guess I guess that was her. And so, so anyway, I was just kind of amazed with her mind and and uh, and and taken with the tragedy of her story. Oh, sorry. Would you say that Lucretia was a proto-feminist? That's what he was saying. Yeah, he was kind of a proto-feminist, probably she could have been an architect. She believed in homeopathic medicine, and she had a female doctor, Dr. Edson, full of medicine. So, who properly, who would have, who probably could have saved saved her husband had he probably. And I think her, I think she was trying to get them to believe her. And she's a woman. Why would they do that? Lucretia, what are you doing in Chicago, my love? Oh, dear James, I took the first train from Medgar as soon as I received the telegram with the dreadful news. Oh, oh that I'm a candidate for president. No. I, I fought as valiantly as I could, Lucretia. Like Custer at Little Bighorn, I made a last stand at the Exposition Center. It took 36 ballots, but... I had no choice but to surrender. They forced me to the podium to accept the nomination. I am sorry. No, oh, I don't blame you, my sweet James. Oh, not even you can overcome the will of 400 men. Oh, don't exaggerate my support, dear. It was only 399 men. Well, let us no longer dwell on our misfortune. It is said to devote our efforts to keeping you alive should you be elected. I'm hoping that won't be too difficult. I'm not so certain. Think of recent history. What? Do you fear that I'll suffer the same fate as poor old Taylor? Fear not. Every July 4th, I'll be sure to leave Washington before anyone can poison me with leprous ice milk. James, it's 1880. Should patterns hold, you're likely to die in office. What? Because tragedy struck the presidents elected in 1840 and 1860? No. Oh, silly Lucretia, don't be so superstitious. I'm neither an ancient Whig general nor a great emancipator. I'm just another Republican from Ohio. We're too sensible to go bareheaded to our inauguration and too uncultured to attend the theater. I'm quite certain that I'll retire from the White House and live to a ripe old age. 
as shall the men elected in 1900, 1920, 1940, and deep into the 20th century. Oh, I'm concerned about you, James, not phantoms. Shouldn't you be choosing a candidate for vice president soon? Ugh, shoot me now. <laughs> oh, that's what I'm trying to avoid, dear. A bullet would be merciful compared to the dogfight that I'll have to endure before I choose a vice president. Senator Conkling and his stalwart faction would force some fat, happy, patronage-dispensing hack upon me. And should I heed Senator Blaine and his half-breeds, how I've learned to hate the word, I'll be stuck with some sanctimonious hypocrite. Then this is your chance to choose the worst potential candidate. If you choose an utterly inept and foolish man for the bottom half of the ticket, fear for the nation's fate will stay the hand of the most vicious assassin and prompt assiduous attempts to save your life should you fall sick or injured. Oh, Lucretia, even if that were true, it wouldn't be possible. I'd need to choose a vice president dumber than Tyler, meaner than Fillmore, and drunker than Johnson. Where on earth would I find such a buffoon? Hello. Oh, why, Jester A. Arthur, we were just speaking of you. Very funny, Lucretia. Uh, did you get lost on your way to the hotel dining room, Arthur? No, although your wife looks good enough to eat. <laughs> How flattering. Your reputation as a gentleman is well deserved, Mr. Arthur. Now, if you're done imitating James K. Polk... Well, that was just a rumor. Yes, and Franklin Pierce was a natural redhead. Uh, I assume you're here for conkling. Only if Mrs. Garfield is willing to conkle me. Oh, my. Your wit has succeeded only by your good looks. I couldn't agree more. State your business, Arthur, and then go find a restaurant that serves Lake Michigan lobster. Which I hear is delicious. But I was hoping to speak to you about your choice of vice president. Are you volunteering for the job, Mr. Arthur? Oh, I wouldn't dream of such a thing. But I was hoping that Mr. Garfield would entertain the idea of Senator Conklin. Over my dead body. <laughs> but you might consider choosing a vice president from New York, James. That's an awful lot of electoral votes. As my late wife Nell used to say, size does matter. Do I hear crickets? In the middle of the day? You'd be the perfect vice president, Mr. Arthur. I'm sure Arthur here doesn't want to leave his lucrative law practice in New York. Oh, fie. What are oysters and champagne compared to the honor of serving your country? Actually, I can have both. I managed to make quite a profit while serving as collector for the Port of New York. Uh, that, that's another concern, Lucretia. Arthur's tenure at the port was not short on scandals. None of which sullied Mr. Arthur's reputation as an affable, well-dressed fellow. It's as if he's made of a magic substance which repels all dirt. Or contains enough blubber to absorb it. Mrs. Garfield, I've never even run for office. Which means you have no enemies. Nor enough spine to attract any. So what do you say, Mr. Arthur? Do you accept the nomination of vice president? Why, I never thought I'd attain such an honor. I feel like I'm caught between the moon and New York City. I must tell Senator Conkling the good news. Hope he isn't armed. <laughs> was that entirely necessary, Lucretia? I believe it was. It's crazy, but it's true. Chester A. Arthur is the best that you can do. Ugh. But there, but but I think yeah, Garfield has actually a rather nicely proportioned um, presidential library, and it is very much Lucretia's making. And so, talking about sort of again, how do you shape history? This was someone who made it her goal that her husband be remembered for something other than how he died. <laughs> is what uh, we spent the most time talking about. Yeah. Well, much, much like the part I, of Hamilton that always makes like me cry. Say, like it's just, it's the same plot as Hamilton. <laughs> and I'm really upset now that Lin-Manuel Miranda did not make a Garfield musical. 
Well, he hasn't done it yet. There's no rap in Ohio aside from both, <laughs> aside from Bone Thugs and Harmony and Cuddy's yeah. from Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, I think the he real left, issue but... would be would it be infringing on uh, Sondheim's territory. When you pass his home, Garfield's home in Menor, Ohio, there is this giant porch, and while there was no specific campaigning, he was known in that campaign for coming out onto the porch and talking to various reporters and voters and uh, well campaigning i guess we would call it literally campaigning from his campaigning from his front porch uh which is a rather novel at the time The smell of a warm Ohio morning. There's nothing like it. So, how does it feel being the nominee to be president, Mr. Garfield? Invigorating, Mrs. Garfield. Imagine what shall happen if I were to win. I am. This home will be quite the attraction. Perhaps a small library of your memorabilia? Please, dearest Lucretia. We cannot presume I will win. Much work needs to be done. One month ago, the thought of being president never entered your head. Which is why nothing should be taken for granted. Good morning, Mr. Garfield! (laughs) Why, good morning to you too, my fine little girl. What a fine bicycle you were riding. Now, now, let's not do any early morning politicking. My pa says you're running to be a president like Mr. Lincoln. Indeed. Your neighbor, a humble man from northern Ohio, may soon be this country's president. Oh, it sounds like you're giving a speech. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, dear. So, my pa told me to ask you if you can get him a job. Oh, your pa is so charming. Well, you tell your pa that if I were fortunate enough to become president, I will work to make sure the country will be full of prosperity and jobs for him to choose from. I don't think my pa wants prosperity. He wants a job. Did someone say the president will be getting people a job? Yeah. Uh, Jobs for all, thanks to the prosperity we can achieve together, fine sir. Uh, your coffee will be burnt, dearest James. I would be quite appreciative and thankful for employment from you myself, uh, should you wish to earn my vote, Representative Garfield. Oh, I am sure my policies will be more than enough. With the federal government getting so big, surely you can find a position for me and this young girl's father? Mm-hmm. Well, my friends, you both know that politicians who promise jobs in exchange for votes... win! They win! And they get people like my pa government jobs! Why, this fine young citizen has a point. I would like to ask that if you two may return later, perhaps after Please, finish... Representative Garfield, shall I get a job if I grant you my vote this November? Well, I was about to say, politicians who promise jobs with the government lead to bad government. I don't see the problem. Me neither. We will soon be having our breakfast, so if you two could please... The jobs I will help get you will be from one of our fine Ohio companies. <laughs> I sew buttons and shirts six days a week. Government jobs gotta be better than that. You know, my husband just became the nominee. You should wait for his position papers like every other presidential candidate rather than believe what he says from a a front porch. Although I certainly appreciate discussing the issues of the day with all of you. I just heard y'all gonna be president. Oh, Lord. You gonna get me a job? Get you a job? Get in line, bub. Hey, get me a job in that post office. Sir? The coffee will taste like tar. I'm a hard worker, and my daddy fought in the war, and that should be enough for you to get me a job in the post office. Well, Mr. Garfield says that ain't how it works. Besides, I was- Ain't how it works? No! I 
I know four people voted for Hayes, and then four people all got jobs after they did. Uh, th three of them are dumber than tree stumps, and two of them dumb stumps is working in the post office. I, I I'd be able to get one of them jobs them imbeciles did. What's an imbecile? Sir, may I suggest... You already lied to me. I don't like Lars. May I suggest, if you need a job right now, that there is no better person to ask than the mayor. After all, even if my husband does become president, it won't be for many months. Sounds like all you need work before that, and Mentor Ohio is growing mightily. If you chat with the mayor... I think he can get you work much sooner than would-be President Garfield could. Well, who's the mayor? You've got a point. Can he get me a job in the post office? You should ask the mayor. I, I was qualified as any hack he would ought to hire. What's a hack? City Hall is just down the road. The big, new, white building. You should go there and talk to the mayor about employment opportunities. They're open. Now, you should go. Oh, that'd be quite acceptable to me. I, I had a long ride from my hometown of Nerva. Speak to the nominee here, but a job is a job. Well, welcome to Mentor. I hope your stay here is productive. Let's go. Thank you, Mrs. Garfield. And tell everyone in Minerva to vote for James Garfield for president. Oh, whatever. I'll remember this. So will we if we end up in Washington. Oh, back to sewing buttons. Thanks a lot, Mr. Garfield. Well, thank you. Does this town even have a post office? <sighs> I hope nobody else tries to accost me for a civil service job. I almost felt endangered. Oh, there aren't very many crazy people in this country. You need not worry. And I don't know if the mayor will appreciate all the job seekers on his If we send step. more crazed job seekers to him, perhaps he'll endorse you. Every vote matters. Let's have some coffee. Uh, may I have a word with you, Mr. Soon-to-be President? Ah, good morning, dear neighbor. How may I... Inside! Uh, now! And a very good idea. And we can talk, if you want, about the patronage and how important that was in 19th century politics. It was vital. And it's often a forgotten part of our history today. Not in Chicago. I think we, <laughs> we remember yeah. how that works real well here. But back then, it was the Republicans who controlled patronage. It was their Achilles heel for all, or it should have been at least. Well, it was whatever party was in power. Jackson invented it, right. And, well, it was during during Jackson's presidency that you have what, what Jackson Williams called rotation in office, which is kind of a fancy way of saying we're firing anyone who didn't support Jackson and putting in good Jackson <laughs> into these jobs. That's a very nice euphemism for it. I like that. <laughs> yes. That's true. <laughs> if, you, if you look at the papers of the presidents, one of the things that, that really strikes me, and I have not been through the papers of, of either Garfield or Arthur, but if you look at Lincoln or Hayes or Grant, much of their incoming correspondence relates to the patronage. It's people seeking jobs. It's recommendations for people for jobs. And Abraham Lincoln, when he's taking office at the most critical period in our history, he gets, I think, more mail about whether or not Simon Cameron should be in his cabinet than he does about the union fault part. And I think that's very telling about how important the patronage is during this period of history and how well uh, Garfield and Hayes might be talking about reforming this and bringing in some um, changes. There's, there's still a lot of entrenched interests and, and I think even regular people who would be resistant to that. Because if you take that away, well, why should someone support you? Are we really talking about think, James A. Garfield right now, or are we just talking about the civil service? I think the really telling thing is that, okay, so you have three presidents, right, who are all in favor of civil service reform between Hayes, uh, and, and you could even kind of, um, 
you know, it, it, I think if Grant was at least, you know, on paper in favor of civil service reform, even if, you know, he didn't move along that a whole lot, but certainly Hayes, certainly Garfield, and then ultimately Chester Arthur, surprisingly enough, um, all are in favor of civil service reform. And it was a popular cause, right? It's something that the people want to have happen. I'm sure if you had opinion polling and said, should there be civil service reform, that would have been popular with the general public. But it takes a while to happen. And that's usually when you kind of, when you have something that's popular and both the people at the top and the people at the bottom are saying we should do this and then it doesn't happen, that's a sure sign that you have institutional weight working against you, that you have some entrenched interest, maybe not one that wants to stick their neck out publicly, but one that is working feverishly behind the scenes to try to secure their interest. Um, and, you know, I think you could see that with, with healthcare reform uh, in the modern age, same goes with civil service reform. It's, it's something that's popular. Uh, it's something that people say they want to do and then nothing gets done because there are powerful interests trying to stop it from happening. Are you saying people are already cynical about the government? I'm saying that the people who were protecting the patronage system were not necessarily writing op-eds saying, hey, patronage is great, and this is why you should support it. I'm saying that they were posting dinners and inviting congressmen and senators and saying, hey, I know you probably don't want to stick your neck out and say I love patronage, but you really do like coming over to my house for dinner, don't you? So when that patronage bill comes up, why don't you find a way to vote against it or at least be out of town? Also, Joe, I think... Uh, being cynical about the government is how we got in America. <laughs> that <laughs> so seemed to recall a little uh, and, revolution. And how we almost about... it's also how we almost lost it a few times over. But Joe, yes, what possible connection could there be between patronage and the short length of Garfield's term? Well, it could have something to do with the person who apparently was upset that he was supposed to get one of those jobs and didn't, hence yes. the motivation, one Charles Guiteau. What a great name. Excellent. Nice sideburns. We've all got facial hair in this yeah. era. There's just Guiteau was, was more than just a disgruntled office seeker. I believe he'd a member of a cult on and off, maybe even tried to start his own. Started and failed a few businesses. He was an all-purpose wacko. But he also just... has the most, like, rational, to me at least, like, he is the least hot-headed assassination. He buys a pistol that'll look good in a museum. He says, like, I'm willing to get caught over this. I know Arthur will be present. Like, of all, like you're right. He's the craziest one, absolutely. Except, like, around the assassination where he suddenly gets normal for no reason. Well, craziest one so far. True. He's expecting a pardon from Arthur, is he not? Was he? I didn't know that. I I believe it though. I mean, he he seemed very self assured. Didn't he ask? Uh, even like then, didn't he sort of approach Garfield again to see if he would appoint this sort of no name to the ambassadorship of France? Right. <laughs> so, in other words, you're saying he thought a president called him to do something and didn't do it, and so he was called. He feels like he's going to do something and another president will absolve him of it. Uh, yes, he... That would I, never happen, come on. Yeah, that never I think to again. simplify it, he thought someone would reward him for political violence. Didn't work great. Ah. Well, it's also amazing after, after Lincoln had died that we're still a ways away from the creation of the Secret Service and the whole concept of maybe we should protect the president just a little bit. Yeah. Well, uh, the Secret Service, unless I was wrong, was formed under Grant, actually. But it was, but to, was uh, not. It was, uh, investigate, uh, it was to investigate counterfeiting. Yeah, right. it was part of the Treasury Department. Yeah, there wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't. Uh, they weren't specifically designed to protect the president. Nor will they for another few years because gonna it's going to happen again. It was actually McKinley. after McKinley when they were finally like, you know what? Maybe we should have someone who actually yeah. guards the president. Mm -hmm. Now, before we uh, before we give start giving Gitto too much credit, it should be said he wounded James Garfield. Correct. The doctors killed him, <laughs> including Doctor oh. Doctor Bliss. 
Paul, you listed earlier, he was a failure at everything he tried. I mean, what did you expect was going to exactly, happen? Exactly, yeah. He couldn't even kill someone right. Also, he's an Illinois native, just so you all know. I'm sure you all knew. Illinois pride. F-I-B. <laughs> you get the good ones. So... Uh, also, he jumped out of the ladies' waiting room, which I love. Like, no lady was like, why is this man here with a gun? He's like, let me explain. God has taken my free will. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> Doctor, so James Garfield's doctor was actually named Doctor Doctor Bliss, and Europe those fancy schmancy European theories about germs and bacteria and cleanliness they had yet to be universally adopted here in the United States. <laughs> so wow, you were pretty slow on a lot of the uh, medical reforms. I think out of just pure American stubbornness. So wow, America, American Americans disdain science. Thank God that would never be a problem again. <laughs> well, the whole medical That's training my catchphrase this episode was an issue. It, I seem to recall, like there, especially this really came to a head around the turn of the century, where basically there was no criteria for starting a medical college, and so you could basically anyone anywhere could say, "Oh, I've got a medical school," and Anyone anywhere attending that school could, under whatever curriculum that that person deemed they were going to teach, then become a licensed doctor. And so the, you know, kind of qualifications for for you to call yourself a doctor were therefore pretty flimsy. Uh, I, I do think there was an effort at reforming this in, in the early 20th century, but it was, yeah, I, and and some of these people um, were were just really bad, and most people didn't have the scientific background to be able to determine whether what they were saying was bs or not to say nothing of that's the where magic elixirs and spells and con and concoctions can cure all everything and just buy it right here the misapprehension one of the misapp many medical misapprehensions don't ask me to say that again that uh killed <laughs> garfield as i recall was the doctors were so focused on removing Guiteau's ball from Garfield's body that, you know, they pursued that end, they pursued that goal to the exclusion of all this, including the infection that was fairly obviously killing him. Which they had caused. Done, Mr. President. You're purging nicely. Dr. Bliss, he merely purges the beef and wine you ordered from the White House kitchen and forced down his throat. Very well, then, Miss Edson. If he can't digest nourishment, we'll get it in him another way. Oughtn't we try a diet of water and clear broths? Get some rest after your nursing shift, dear lady. You're fatigued to the point of thinking you're a doctor. I am a doctor. The family called me to Mr. Garfield's bedside because I cured Mrs. Garfield of her recent illness. When the president contracts female hysteria, you can treat him. But when Guiteau shot him, he suffered a manly wound. So a man must treat him with manly methods. Oh. Or morphine, now! But if we accustom Mr. Garfield to the use of morphine, don't we risk giving him the soldier's disease? If you mean addiction, there's a German scientist who synthesized a new drug which shows great promise in curing morphine dependency. It's called heroin. If you mean the clap, I routinely check his genitals for legions or lice. Erupt, <laughs> my president! Spew forth hot fluids like mighty Vesuvius or the magnificent geysers of the American continent. Are you the new attendant? Quickly, help me draw an ice bath. <laughs> Tis no fever. The president's blood burns with the fire of American greatness. Who is this weirdo, Dr. Bliss? Ignoramus. This is America's greatest poet, Walt Whitman. Champion of the common man, bard of the barroom, battlefield, and bordello, and part-time nurse. I knew the bliss of serving under Dr. Bliss during the Civil War and envied the wounded. Oh, to have the 
lying on a bed with Dr. Bliss probing me. Speaking of probing, poke around inside Mr. Garfield. His wound oozes laudable pus, but still no assassin's bullet. Ah, soon shall I grasp Gito's ball. Mr. Whitman, oughtn't you wash your hands? My hands are coated with America. They shall heal him. Uh, but Dr. Lister's theories concerning the sterilization of wounds and instruments has shown great promise in Europe. Europe, you say? Ah. Shall we practice the medicine of tyranny? What heals a European shall never suffice for a stout-hearted American. Our love of liberty is what defeats illness. Would some alchemist devise a vaccine to save me from all disease? I'd spurn it! Sickness is health! That makes no sense. Do I contradict myself? Very well. I contradict myself. I'm large. I contain multitudes. So do your hands. And it is these very hands that have found the cursed bullet! Or maybe not. I was wondering where I'd put that cigar. Poor Mr. Garfield. How did it stay lit? Ought we be surprised that such an Olympus of a man should have Vulcan in his bowels? Anyway, I remain determined to thrust and thrust until I come up with treasure! How did a live pig end up inside the President of the United States? The Republican Convention was in Chicago this year. And Chicago pigs become notoriously bothersome during political conventions. But no squealer shall deter me from plunging ever deeper into this beautiful man! I admire your versatility, Mr. Whitman. What on earth is that sound? Miss Edson, are you some bumpkin who's never heard the ringing of Alexander Graham Bell's creation, the telephone? Why is it coming from inside the president? Oh, um, Mr. Bell built a machine to aid in finding the bullet inside of Mr. Garfield, but he packed the wrong invention. I was too polite to say anything. (gasps) Hello? Why, yes, my watch is running. Why do you inquire? Chase it? Oh, why, how could I chase something that has no legs? Contemplate that, dear fellow. (laughs) What a poor, befuddled fool. Very well, then. If I cannot cure the president with my medical knowledge, I shall do it with my verse. Welcome is every organ and attribute of me, and of any man, hearty and clean. Not an inch, nor a particle of an inch, is vile. Uh, Everyone's a critic. Hmm. Garfield was... Yeah, it's very interesting the reactions to his death and how he's compared to Lincoln. A lot, of, a lot of comparisons made between Garfield and Lincoln. Not, not a comparison you hear a lot about these days. No the proximity <laughs> of Robert Todd Lincoln to the assassinated that does draw a few comparisons. Well, and McKinley as well. I mean, the curse presidents with the zeros until we get to Reagan. Right, the curse. Yeah, I think that uh, Sarah Val refers to Robert Lincoln in her book, Assassination Vacation, as Jinxie McDeath. <laughs> I believe I've referred to him on this podcast as the bad luck kid. <laughs> at, the age of 78, he, at the age of 78, he attended a memori- you know, the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial in 1922, yep. attended by uh, Warren G. Harding, who was dead within a year. <laughs> so the Lincoln, the Robert Lincoln bad mojo, you know, it it was still kind of potent even in his dotage. Oh, it's I think that starts even you know as a pretty young child. Didn't he share a room with Willie? Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> something's going on there. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> 
with songs I, about Gato. I wanted to ask, as long as we're talking about reshaping Garfield's legacy, Dr. Norman, you'd mentioned he was compared a lot at the time to Lincoln. How did that comparison go? <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm really what I'm asking is what were the similarities that were highlighted? Not was it just that he got shot? Was that the only? <laughs> well, yeah, it, that that he got shot and he was seen as someone. I mean, Lincoln obviously lived long enough to to demonstrate he was a great president. For Garfield, it was well. He had a lot of potential. He was a great orator. He was highly intelligent. Uh, people liked his policies. But he's cut down almost immediately, and it's this. Well, what if? What if he had lived? How might? How might the country have been much better with him? So being... almost, a, almost a little bit and of a also, Kennedy he, thing. He wasn't where uh, he wasn't know, president long him. enough to get himself embroiled into any major scandals or anything like that. So you know, he really wasn't there long enough to make a lot of enemies or make a lot of people mad. So Except you know, I think, live yeah, fast and leave a beautiful court. Guy, Garfield. Um, so I, I think that that led there to perhaps being greater public sympathy than if he had been there for three years and, um, you know, had, uh, you know, made half the country mad and, you know, had had two of his cabinet ministers indicted for, uh, uh, you know, embezzlement or corruption or whatever. People might not have been quite as sympathetic then. Whether that would have happened, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, that might be given not giving him enough credit. He might have been great. But, yeah, he, he just was kind of... I, almost seemed as kind of like this i don't know like political innocent if you will at least nationally well in the is someone was making the point about the number of monuments he gets i mean the the outpouring of grief all of the ephemera that was produced to mourn him it really does kind of stack up with with abraham lincoln i mean there was this intense period of mourning after garfield succumbed to his wound and I think that that's a very interesting similarity. There's this fantastic monument to him on Capitol Hill. But yeah, he's largely forgotten today or the only reason he's remembered is because he was because he was assassinated so early in his presidency. And again, we just we we know that it took him 2 months to die, so there was a certain amount of tension, you know, people like how's the story going to end and uh you, you know, and nonstop media coverage of his w- wound and his, you know, What's what's the status of President Garfield today? Yeah. What what does it smell like today, John? <laughs> Boy. Well, it seems like it's it's getting a little uh, almondy for me. <laughs> he died. Let's see. Shots, June like third, nineteenth, eighteen eighty one. More precisely. Yes, that's all right. Yeah. And died September nineteenth, eighteen eighty one. So. He arguably had the most miserable post-presidency. <laughs> well, not... no, technically he was still president during that time. Yeah, I don't know how much influence he had. And at September 20th, 1881, America says, <laughs> and hello to Hi. President Chester Arthur. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Jouet, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Sandy Bykowski, Brad Davidson, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com and follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.